is from, is this down too low? Can't tell. Uh, from John chapter 29, or John chapter 20, I will read verses 19 through 31. Hear the word of God. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, they are withheld. It is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for this gospel account and we thank you that you have promised that wherever two or more are gathered in your name that you are present there and so we welcome you here in uh, our company this morning. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts uh, this day and that you would uh, show yourself to us and I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So did you ever feel jealous of Jesus' disciples? Did you ever wish that you had been around to see Jesus in the flesh? How much deeper would our understanding of the divine mysteries be if we had sat at Jesus' feet while he taught Torah? How much more boldly would we live out our faith If we had been with Jesus when he healed the sick and fed the 5,000 and drove the money changers out of the temple. How rock solid and unflappable would our convictions be if we had the privilege like Mary Magdalene and, and, and Simon Peter of seeing the resurrected Jesus. In some very real sense, seeing is believing. We read last Sunday that John saw and that he believed. So why does Jesus say to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those 
who have not seen and yet have believed. Living in the 21st century, we don't have much choice. If we're going to believe in Jesus, it will have to be without seeing. We can't see Jesus the way that Mary or Peter or Thomas did. We can't touch the scars in his hands. And so Jesus is talking about us when he says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas heard reports of the resurrection of Jesus from people that he knew and trusted. He heard reports at minimum from ten disciples, from ten eyewitnesses, but he says to them, unless I see his hands myself, I will never believe. So how many reliable eyewitnesses do we need before we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? Is ten enough? How about 20? Would 500 do the trick? Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Professor D.A. Carson in his commentary on this passage writes, the word makarios, blessed, does not simply declare happy those who meet the conditions, but pronounces them accepted by God. That's a bit beefier. Accepted by God are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Quoting Genesis 15.6, Paul writes in Romans 4.3, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Hebrews 11.6 says, it is impossible to please God without faith. If we want to be accepted by God, we need to believe without seeing. If we want to please God, we have to have faith without sight. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so it is fair to ask, how does John's account of the unbelief of Thomas teach us or reprove us or correct us or train us for righteousness. Of the four gospel writers, John is the only one who mentions this episode. It is, of course, impossible for any single account of the life of Jesus to report everything that ever happened to Jesus and to his disciples. Each gospel writer makes choices about what episodes to include. And John thinks that this story about the Apostle Thomas is important to tell. It isn't a very flattering story. And beside this one episode, the Bible doesn't really tell us a whole lot about Thomas. He's not a star like Peter or John or Mary. And he's gone down in history as doubting Thomas. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include Thomas's name in the various list of the 12 disciples, but only in the Gospel of John do we hear Thomas speak. In John 11, Jesus receives word that Lazarus is sick, and he decides to go to Bethany to see Lazarus, but the disciples are afraid because there have been threats in that region to stone Jesus to death. By going to Bethany, Jesus risked his life. And in John 11, 16, we hear Thomas say, let us also go 
that we may die with him. That's impressive. In John 14, at the Last Supper, Jesus says to his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. It's a passage that... I often read at funerals. In response to this little speech, Thomas says in verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And then we have the story that we read this morning in chapter 20. The story where Thomas doesn't believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead until he sees for himself. Those are the few things that the Bible tells us about this man. Church history tells us that Thomas traveled as far as the Indian state of Kerala, way down in the southwest corner of the Indian subcontinent. He arrived there in the year A.D. 52. He preached the gospel. He baptized a bunch of people. And he began a Christian church which continues to exist today. Some people are surprised to learn that there were Christians in India before there were Christians in England. Today, many Indian Christians are named Thomas in honor of the apostle who brought the gospel to their country. So why does John include this unflattering story about Thomas in his gospel? What are the lessons for us in this story? I see three. Number one, faith always involves uncertainty. Faith always involves uncertainty. Number two, faith is rooted in the heart and not the head. And number three, faith is a gift from God. So let me begin with number one. We Christians need to get used to the fact that faith always involves uncertainty. Anything that is 100% certain is not a matter of faith. I don't need faith to believe that I'm standing in Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church on a Sunday morning. I have so much evidence for that fact that I'd have to be plain crazy to not believe it, and so no faith is necessary. But I do need faith to believe that God answers prayer, I do need faith to believe that God loves me. I do need faith to believe that God will work all things for my good because I love him and because I've been called according to his purposes. Those truths are not evident in the same way as the truth that I'm standing in Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church on a Sunday morning. They are just as true, but they are not as certain. Those are truths about things that we cannot see, and so we need faith. When people come to me and say, as they not infrequently do, Pastor, I'm having some doubts. I'm having some doubts about God. I'm not sure about some of the things that I'm reading in the Bible. I'm uncertain about where I stand with God. 
When people come to me and say, Pastor, I'm having some doubts, what they mean is, Pastor, I'm not 100% certain. And I'm not sure if I say it out loud, but what I'm thinking in my head is, well, duh, of course you're not 100% certain. Because if you were 100% certain, you wouldn't need faith. And here's the important thing. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 6.11. Without faith, we are not accepted by God. John 20.29. 20, Without faith, we are not counted righteous. Romans 4.3. And here's the big one. Without faith, we are not saved. Ephesians 2.8. In some strange way, if you come to me and say, Pastor, help me get rid of all of my doubts. Pastor, make me 100% certain. What you're really asking for me to do is to destroy your faith. And that would be a very strange thing to ask a pastor to do for you. Especially as Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen... And yet believe. The core of what we believe as Christians is about things that we cannot see. So do not be surprised if you feel uncertain sometimes. Faith lives in a constant tension with uncertainty. Faith is a perpetual struggle with doubt. If you struggle with uncertainty, if you wrestle with doubt, please understand this. Your very struggle is a sign that you have real faith. Faith is not the opposite of doubt. Faith is the opposite of unbelief. Let me say that again. Faith is not the opposite of doubt. Faith is the opposite of unbelief. There is a big difference. It is a mistake to call Thomas doubting Thomas. What we should call him is unbelieving Thomas. There's a big difference. Thomas didn't say, I'm uncertain about this resurrection of Jesus. I'm having some doubts about the reports that I'm hearing from my fellow disciples. What he said was, I will not believe. And he didn't. He didn't believe until Jesus intervenes and gave him the gift of faith. Faithless people, unbelieving people are certain that there is no God. They are certain that Jesus was not raised from the dead. They know for sure that the death of Jesus is not an atoning sacrifice. Faithful people, on the other hand, believing people, on the other hand, will at times wrestle with doubts and uncertainties. They will say things like, Pastor, I'm praying and I'm praying, but it seems like God isn't listening. They'll say things like, I can't figure out how God can be both holy and just and also merciful and kind. Now... Having said that faithful people have doubts and uncertainties, let me also say that doubt is a sign of our weakness as people who are not yet fully on God's wavelength. While doubt shouldn't panic us, we also should be striving for fuller faith, for more complete faith, which calms 
many of our doubts. James, the brother of Jesus, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem after the ascension of Jesus, James writes in James 1, verses 5 and 6, quote, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. James recognizes that some Christians, and please note his letter is addressed to the church, it's not addressed to people in the outside world. James recognizes that some Christians will find themselves praying to God with a faith that has a mixture of doubt in it. The presence of doubt is not a good thing. It makes us driven like a wave, tossed in the wind. But it doesn't mean that we aren't Christians. As we mature in our faith, we do become steadier. Immature Christians are always on a roller coaster, up and down, up and down in their faith. But over time, as we mature in our faith, our trust in God becomes more solid. And we find that we can weather heavy storms with less wavering. Here's what I want you to understand, though, as a bottom line. The immature Christian whose faith has a large dollop of doubt added to it, And the mature Christian whose faith has been tested and made steady, both of them are in Christ. Both of them are part of God's holy church. Jude, who was another brother of Jesus, Jesus had four brothers, by the way, that four brothers that we know of. Jude, in his little letter, it only has one chapter in it. Jude writes in verses 20 through 22, Building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Sometimes that mercy needs to be directed toward others. Sometimes that mercy needs to be directed toward ourselves. So lesson number one, faith always involves uncertainty. Lesson number two, faith is rooted in the heart, not the head. Our religious faith is less about a certain set of abstract theories that we need to believe and more about a certain set of concrete behaviors that we ought to display. Our faith is less about theological constructions like the Trinity and eternity and the incarnation and is more about ethical commitments like mercy and justice and kindness. Oftentimes, people who do not believe in Jesus, people who do not believe in the Bible, people who do not believe in God have chosen that path, not because their mind rejects certain abstract principles or supernatural events, things like substitutionary atonement or the virgin birth, but rather because their hearts reject the ethical commitments like holiness and sexual purity and submission to the divine will. 
that comes with following Jesus. Their faith problem is in their hearts, not in their heads. In my 20s, I turned my back on God and on the church and on the faith that I had been raised in, not because I discovered a logical error in the theology of the church, but because I wanted to live in a way that I knew did not square with what God expected of me. What I wanted for myself was not what God wanted for me. I knew that. And so my heart convinced my head to not believe in God, to not believe in His revealed will, because my will did not want to submit to the will of God. I am a prideful, self-centered, willful man. And if there is a God, and if Jesus is His Son, and if the Scriptures are true, then it is not okay for me to stay that way. I knew that. Humans have a tremendous capacity to convince themselves of whatever they want to believe. Paul describes this phenomenon in 2 Timothy 4, 3, where he writes, For the time will come, or maybe the time has always been here, when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, that's a hard thing, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. In my 20s, I no longer wanted to hear a preacher tell me that I should live a humble, chaste, and sober life. And so my itching ears were more eager to listen to Friedrich Nietzsche, the 19th century German philosopher who told me that Christian virtues are only for slaves, but we, supermen, are beyond good and evil, and we get to make our own rules, which is exactly what I did. We are modern people. And we like to think that we are so rational. But the human heart can be very crafty in making the mind think what it wants to think. Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can understand it. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Lesson number two, faith is rooted in the heart not the head. And finally, lesson number three, faith is a gift from God. On the first Easter Sunday, Thomas missed out on seeing the resurrected Jesus. At least ten, probably more, but at least ten of his closest friends had seen Jesus and told Thomas about what they saw, but Thomas was adamant, I will not believe. One week later, Jesus shows up again. And he says to Thomas, it must have been very embarrassing, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hands and place it in my side. And then Jesus said to him, do not disbelieve. That was an extraordinary and a generous gift. Jesus could have been angry with Thomas for his stubborn unbelief. This, after all, was a man who had seen Jesus perform many miracles, who had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. But instead of being angry with him, Jesus is gentle and direct. He let, Jesus, he let Thomas touch his body. And he said to him, do not disbelieve. And Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. 
Anyone who has faith in Jesus Christ has received that faith as a gift from God. As a child, I received the gift of faith in Jesus Christ by being born into a Christian family and having missionary parents. And as a man in my early 30s, after wandering in a wilderness of unbelief for a number of years, I received that gift again, this time by having a wife who asked probing questions and dragged me to a Bible-believing church. I did not create my own faith. God gave it to me. Twice. Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Lesson number three, faith is a gift from God. So let me close with a word of caution and a word of invitation and a word of encouragement. First, a word of caution to the wait-and-see crowd, to the fence-sitters, to the I-want-to-keep-my-option-open folks. If you're holding off on making a decision about Jesus until you've gathered a little more information, if you think you'll be able to come to some conclusions about Jesus once you've read a few more books, then you're fooling yourself. You already know enough. And faith always involves uncertainty. Even the Apostle Paul, the super-Christian, said that he saw these things through a glass darkly. You already today know enough to make a decision to follow Christ. Second, an invitation. I want to invite you today to make a decision to follow Christ. I want to invite you to say, yes! I will believe in Jesus. I will believe that the Bible is the word of God. Yes, I will admit that God is my creator and that he deserves my worship. That's an invitation. And third, I want to offer a word of encouragement. Real Christians, heaven-bound Christians, can have real doubts. Don't let Satan lie to you. Don't let him use the normal, natural doubts get between you and God. Keep on believing, even when you are not 100% sure. We won't be 100% sure until we see Jesus face to face. And finally, don't be afraid to pray my favorite prayer in the Bible. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let us pray. Father God, we love you and we adore you. And we love you and we adore you because you have shown yourself to us. You've shown us your hands and your side and you've shown us what it is that you've done for us and who it is that you are. And for that, we love you and we believe in you and we trust you this day. Lord, we pray that you would deepen our faith and we pray that you would not allow Satan to use moments of uncertainty to undermine our trust in you. Lord, our trust is in you. You are rock steady. You are reliable. You are trustworthy. 
We thank you for the faith that you've given us. We pray that you continue to increase our faith all the days of our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who is the author of our faith. Amen.